If you're an athlete, you know the greatest motivator of all is the fear of letting your teammates down. After all, a team is only as good as its weakest link. So you owe it to those wearing the same jersey as you to be your best every time you step on the field. That's why there's no vape in team. When you vape, you can expose your lungs to toxic chemicals that can damage your lungs. If you're a step behind, the team's a step behind. Brought to you by The Real Cost and the FDA. This episode of Switchcraft is brought to you by Door-to-Door Geek. Support Switchcraft on my other content for as little as a dollar and get exclusive rewards at patreon.com slash run, jump, stomp. I normally record the shows on Tuesday, Thursday, and on Saturday. However, I'm recording this uh, Friday morning because I'm going out of town uh, for an educational conference, and I won't be here if something crazy happens. So if between when I'm recording this, uh, which is 8 a.m., Uh, Eastern Time on Friday and tomorrow. If something crazy happens, I will cover it on Tuesday uh, for that episode. Um, Luckily, though, uh, I was able to interview uh, Chris Borassa from Red Hook Studios. They made um, Darkest Dungeon, which is a really cool um, turn-based tactical RPG that uh, is a whole lot of fun and uh, really, really frustrating. And Chris is a really nice guy, and I appreciate him coming on the show. So without further ado, here is Chris Borassa from Red Hook Studios, and um, see you guys Tuesday. So I am here with Chris Borassa. Uh, is that, did I say that right? Yep. All right. He is the founder of Red Hook Studios. They are the developers of Darkest Dungeon, which recently had a port for the Nintendo Switch. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks very much for the invite. Um, what is your job on the dev team? Uh, well, I'm a co-founder of the company along with my business partner, uh, Tyler Sigman. Um, I do uh, the art uh, narrative um uh, help with the business, <laughs> um, make sure there's coffee, uh, kind of everything, a little bit of everything. But my focus is on uh, creative direction and, uh, and art production. So like you did like the drawings and stuff like that, or do you approve yep. the drawings? Uh, no, I mean, uh, we did the entire game with just me doing all the art. And then uh, for the Crimson Court DLC, we added uh, Trudy Castle to our team, who's a very, very talented artist who, who collaborated with me on that content but uh there was a couple of years there where it was uh, it was just this guy wow uh the, the art is really fantastic what like did are you trained in like uh do you like have a degree in art or something like that because it's it's beautiful work thanks man uh no i have a degree in sociology <laughs> uh which i realized immediately after receiving it was basically fundamentally unemployable so i didn't know what i wanted to do after university and i'd always just drawn and so i, I guess i'm self-taught i did an animation program uh after university but that was more focused on like 3d animation which i learned that i really didn't like uh, but the concept art portion before doing the modeling and the rest of it really resonated with me so i just kind of built my career out from there awesome oh and i'll ping pack ping pong back and forth between you and and the game itself so we're like let's talk a little bit about your history as a gamer like what are some of the games that inspired you to want to make your own games Uh, i guess 
There's a couple things. Um, you know, I grew up playing like CRPGs primarily. Uh, I had a Sega Master System, but I grew up with uh, most of my time spent um, on the 286 and the 486, like with King's Quest and, you know, later Eye of the Beholder and Eye of the Beholder 2 and things like that. So I always had this sort of real affinity for that style of game. Um, but I never had the opportunity to work on one. I, I, I've been in games for about 15 years uh, prior to starting Red Hook. And the projects I've been on have been like, you know, pretty varied in terms of their platforms and their genres, but I never really felt like I was able to scratch the the itch of like a, a sort of a true or at least a inspired by a classic CRPG type game. So that was always sort of lurking in the back of my mind. And uh, larger companies um, are, you know, inherently risk averse and um, after, you know, experimenting with, you know, mobile games and AAA console games and single A sort of um, licensed product, uh, I art directed a cartoon show for a year. Nothing just seemed to fit and I felt like, you know, I'd tried a lot of other things and I had uh, had a small child and another one on the way and I thought if I was ever going to take a, take a run at something on my own, I had to do it now before I needed the, uh, I, I needed the bankable income. <laughs> And uh, so that's kind of what led me to to break off. So uh, were you were you working with Tyler before you guys started Red Hook or what? We met at a studio in Vancouver called Backbone Entertainment, um, and he was uh, he was a game designer there, and I was uh, a studio art director, and we got along. We ended up playing poker together a lot. Uh, had a lot of kind of shared game values, I guess, and. Uh, just became friends and always wanted to do something together. But it was, you know, it was about 10 years after we met or maybe, maybe seven or eight um, before we actually pulled the trigger on this. And, and we had talked about it for about a year, each working at different jobs. Um, but we would get together and, you know, have a drink and talk about different game ideas. And, and this idea of sort of fallible, um, broken heroes and exploring heroism by contrast and, and the, the price you'd have to pay if your job was to just kill things in the dark um, really resonated with us. And so we chatted back and forth for about a year or so before finally, uh, you know, the timing lined up and we were able to pull the trigger. Yeah, I, I think um, I think one of the things that I like most about Darkest Dungeon is that is that quote right at the very beginning where it says, hey, look, you're going to fail at this game and that's OK. And I really, really like that. It it, it makes the game it makes it. it even though many times I'm playing the game and I'm like, okay, I can stay for one more turn and then I get wiped out. Um, it makes it okay for me to say, you know what? I'm going to run away this time. And it's like, well, but you will suffer the stress of failure. I'm like, you know what? But the game said that was okay at the very beginning. And I really like that. And is that like the, is that something not necessarily the quote at the beginning, but is that overall feeling that failure is okay is that something that you guys had like in your original design document or is that something that uh, developed over sorry, time cut out there um the overall feeling yeah the overall feeling did it that the overall feeling of failure is okay did that develop over time or is that something that you and tyler sat down with the original desi design document and we and said this is something that we want to make sure to happen no that was that was part and parcel of the of the core experience we wanted to um, toy with player agency a little bit and, and convey this idea that as a manager, you can't always directly control the actions of, of the people under you. Um, and we wanted to 
explore this idea of heroism by contrast, where by and large you would be suffering setbacks and, and your skill as a leader was really more about how you were able to roll with punches and mitigate damage than it was about uh, a power fantasy. And, and so we just developed, you know, game systems and then messaging around that so that, you know, nobody felt entitled to a win. Because I think that's one of the biggest differences between our game and, and a lot of other RPGs is that when you are an appropriate level um, and all other things being equal, uh, you should generally, the conventional wisdom is you should generally succeed the quest or the encounter or whatever it is because you've got the... Um, but our, our game was always intended to sort of explore the edge cases of, of what if and you know we have a lot of rooting in cosmic horror and, and horror movies in general and they always start with that what if like a highly skilled team of mountaineers climbs up a mountain and someone's leg breaks well that's when the movie starts it's not it's not that you're owed um an easy summit it's that um your metal is really tested when things don't go according to plan and, and they often do in, in life and so we really felt like that was fertile ground to explore you know and, and gamify obviously we're not providing like a literal or or even an exhaustive look at this topic but um just that that idea that failure is part of success and um and and managing failure is is almost more important a skill than capitalizing when the wins are good you know Right, right. So when something bad happens, how do you deal with it? I, that's that's one of the things. And in, in Darkest Dungeon, bad stuff is always happening. Like you can't get away from it. And Yeah, you just have to embrace it and you have to know what your own limits are. And it, and it makes people think very differently about their units, like who, who's actually expendable, like how far should I push? What's, you know, what's the risk reward equation looking like? Uh, and so we, yeah, we wanted to challenge players to think about things a little bit differently in that regard. Yeah. When I was playing the game, I felt like those little stress bars at the bottom, I felt like I had my own. And as I was playing, it just kept like my stress level just kept getting up and up and up. And I was like, I, I know that I can finish this. I'm almost at the end. And I would go one turn too far or I would get lucky and it would happen. And um, there was some of those moments were just where you just wanted to shove your fist up in the air and be like, yes, I nailed it. I can't believe that that worked. And uh, there was a lot of moments like that in Darkest Dungeon. Um, what, um, where, what, what's the hardest part of your job uh, at Red Hook? Um, that's a really tricky question to answer off the fly. I, uh, y you know, there, there's a lot of challenges uh, on a small indie team. Uh, I think one of the biggest things that I face is just the sheer volume of work versus the amount of hours available to me. Like when we were deep in production, um, I, uh, I didn't lead a very balanced life, uh, if you can forgive the euphemism. It was, uh, it was a lot of hours, a lot of hunching over and, and just like cranking out content. We were all really passionate about making the game, so I, I'm not looking for any sympathy in that regard. But um, that was definitely hard. It was a it was a bit of a production marathon for sure. Um, and you know, it being a very personal project or something that's very close to close to our hearts, wanted to make sure that it's really good. So I felt a lot of pressure in terms of, you know, delivering great work and delivering a lot of it. So that, that was a big, big challenge. I think the challenges change, though, as, as the sort of seasons, you know, progress. Like what was a challenge when we were making the game is, is no longer a challenge now because I'm not directly involved in a lot of the ports. Um, we're, you know, we're striking out and, and doing a, a, another DLC and then we're trying to get organized for um, our second game. And so the challenge is there. How do you avoid, you know, sophomore album syndrome? 
Um, how do you avoid the pitfalls <laughs> of, of uh, you, you know, making sure that you have hard conversations about what's what's worth keeping and what's important to sort of jettison, and, and how do you make a, a subsequent product different enough that it's its own game, but not so different that the people who enjoy your work feel like you've done a 180. So the problems kind of change and, and, and the big problem of the day or the week or even the year uh, kind of shifts from time to time. But um, I guess it's a, it's not a definitive answer, but uh, yeah, I'm kind of sort of in, in, in and around in that headspace, I guess. Gotcha. Um, one thing that I really liked about Darkest Dungeon is the narrator. Like they really yeah. add to the atmosphere of the game. I also felt like, uh, the narrator's chatter was useful as well. It was like uh, he'd say something to to trigger my my brain to say, "Oh, you you know, you didn't notice, but you just got a crit, or something awesome just happened, or something terrible just happened." Was that something that was in at the beginning, or did you develop the game and say, "Like it's just too quiet. We need something to to add to this and do that later in development." Yeah, uh, Wayne June does the narration. He does a just an uh, an exemplary job, and and I agree, it it's really become part and parcel of the whole experience. We um, initially hadn't thought about it. Uh, we were putting together uh, the way we sort of tried to roll out, you know, our development was that we we wanted to release a trailer and just see if people were even interested in the tone of the game we wanted to make. Um, so this is you know a number of years ago now, but we were putting together this this sort of announcement trailer. Uh, partly to test the market and see if you know we thought we could continue with development, um, and and partly to test our, our own game vision you know to ourselves, and I didn't want to do any of these flying title cards and like you know upgrade your heroes and you know build a town and it, that sort of like normal video game trailer stuff. Mm -hmm. I wanted something a little bit more cinematic and moody and tony. Um, but we realized we needed we couldn't just have music and images, so we needed some voiceover. And uh, I reached out to Wayne because I'd listened to his H.P. Lovecraft audiobook readings, and he said, "Yep, no problem, I'll do it." He recorded one take, and uh, we put that in with the art and the music, and you could almost hear like an audible click in the room. I actually never forget it. We were in uh, we were on like the fifteenth floor or something in uh, in this guy's home studio. Uh, Power Up Audio does our audio mixing and mastering, and we were in Jeff's uh, home studio. It was Tyler and Jeff and Kevin and I, and just watching it all together, all at once. I just turned to Tyler and I'm like, "Well, now we need a we need a fucking narrator." <laughs> <That's> <laughs> like, it's just too perfect, you know. Um, and so from there, I actually wrote the ancestor character um, around the idea that you know Wayne would be narrating. It's so the lines are are written for his cadence and his tone, and uh, obviously borrowing you know heavily from the source material uh, like the Edgar Allan Poe and William Hope Hodgson and H.P. Lovecraft and that sort of like um, turn of the century or like 20s kind of pulp tonality and, and, and vocabulary but he handles that stuff really really well and uh, so basically we built that character around the idea that we needed a narrator and so how do we justify that there's a narrator well what if he's sort of a ghost and, you know, and kind of built the story outward from this, this need to have a narrator because that first, uh, trailer just clicked so well. It's, it's funny how, how things kind of happen by accident. And that sounds like, uh, one of those accidental or happy accident moments where it, it, everything just comes together and you can almost hear, 
uh, Hannibal from the A-team say, I love it when a plan comes together. Totally. That's yeah. exactly what it was. I mean, there's we've been through times also where the opposite has happened, and that makes these kinds of moments all the more special. So um, what are what is it that you're excited or look, looking forward to? What's what's coming up down the road for Red Hook? Um, well, we got uh, just got the Switch port out the door. We've uh, squashed a couple nasty bugs with it. Um, we have an Xbox port coming out as well, which will be really cool. And um, we're working on our third and final DLC, which is called The uh, Color of Madness. And um, that brings like some new enemies and some new mechanics in. Um, we're going to try and share a little bit more concrete information about that, I think, next month. Um, and planning and plotting game two. We've got a, got a great outline. I think strong. And I'm looking forward to, to diving in on that. Now, is game two... I, I, and if you can't answer that, that's fine. But is game two a Darkest Dungeon sequel or is it like something else? Well, I mean, have you seen Breaking Bad? Oh, yeah. I loved it. Have you seen Better Call Saul? Absolutely. Although I'm not so, caught up. <laughs> that's kind of been my mantra. I want to I wanna keep the name. Um, and I think that the heroes and, and that kind of thing are, are really cool and important. Um, so there's definitely some, some crossover, some similarities. But we also don't want to just make more of the same game. I think that. That was the point of the DLC is to really grow the scope of the game after launch. Um, and, you know, we want to try to uh, break the mold a little bit and, and try some new things, but also want it to be uh, related, I guess. Awesome. Uh, so you, you did mention uh, the ports that you've been working on. One thing that I noticed and uh, people had asked me on like my YouTube channel and stuff um, was the controls were a little cumbersome, not not in combat, but in town uh, on the yeah. switch. And um, I was wondering, did you guys ever put any thought into maybe using like the gyro that's in the uh, right Joy-Con in order to be like a virtual mouse to alleviate that problem for you? Or is that something that just wouldn't work on on that port? Um, you know, I, I'll freely take that that critique uh, on the chin. This was uh, for a little bit of background, like we there were three of us at one point and um, very, very small team. We grew to about five we didn't even know if there'd be enough sales to justify a, a single port, let alone three or four. And so this was always designed as a, as an early access steam game. And as a result, you know, throughout early access, we were adding features and options to the game, which were very, very natural to do with keyboard and mouse and uh, come time to port it over to PlayStation Vita um, switch Xbox, uh, it definitely in, in town, I think, suffers from a bit of that just lack of foresight, uh, just because we didn't want to take for granted that we need to future proof it because we had no idea how this thing was going to go for it. Oh, yeah. I mean, that makes perfect <laughs> sense. But uh, but it's true. Yeah, it's a it's a little clunky for sure. Um, I, I think that we, we looked at some of the gyro stuff, but the overhead in terms of getting that up and running um, was a little bit prohibitive. And we felt like just combining the touch with the sort of the Vita controls would would be, you know, sort of the, the best of what we could realistically do in the timeline that we had. Because the other thing is we can't sync like six, eight months and delay it. And, you know, the game, no game is relevant forever. Um, and so we didn't want to be looking at like a, 
like a 2019 switch release kind of thing right right and it's it's certainly not that the game is is i mean i've heard the hyperbole people saying it's unplayable but it's certainly not it it is definitely something you can get used to it's just it takes a little bit of use go ahead for, for sure and the other thing is like and i've seen this critique a lot um the the font size in the portable mode or on Vita is problematic for for some people, and that's just objectively true as well. Um, but we have no UI middleware; uh, it's all placed with like X Y coordinates. The font size, you know, is as big as it can be without overlapping the menus. And again, it's just sort of inheriting problems from your past self, and then trying your best to sort of mitigate them. But uh, we're not always able to be completely su- or as successful as we'd like to be. Um, but we are actually looking into um, some other solutions for like zooming in or, or font scaling or something like that. Um, we're, we're checking that stuff out now because we, we do want to have, you know, give people a, a, the best experience we can. It's just that in development, sometimes you, you inherit problems from your past self or decisions that you made when you didn't know that this something else would be a factor later. Um, so we're sensitive to it for sure. Oh, I, I totally understand. There's a, there's not a day goes by where I don't, uh, try Like I'm a teacher and where I'll, I'll be like working on something and I'll say, you know, if I had just done this the other way six months ago, it would make right now so much easier. And so I totally get where you're coming from. Um, it seems like you pull a lot of inspiration for darkest dungeon from a lot of different places. I know that you talked about like the gold box games on, uh, on old school PCs and stuff like that. And you talked about some books and you mentioned board games, I think at one point, um, uh, what were some of the board games that you played that made you want to try? Cause this is very much feels like a, a almost, almost like a, a cooperative board game. Um, almost like uh, Mansions yeah. of Madness or something um, like that. Have you ever played that the kind board of game? Game thing? Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, we pulled from 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 books and movies and comics and, and everything. And, and the board game thing specifically, I think, um, comes primarily uh, from Tyler, who is a, a huge fan of board games. And his whole approach to design is like paper prototyping. Um, and he's a real like systems architecture oriented uh, game designer. Um, for me, I think uh, the Black Tower and uh, Dungeon are probably the two board games that kind of inform my thinking uh, around Darkest Dungeon. I can't speak for him, but I do know that he has a, a much greater um, breadth of experience uh, in, in board games. So he could probably rifle off like 10 or 12 that he was thinking about. Mm-hmm. Um, but for me, it was definitely like Black Tower with that that god-awful like plastic tower in the middle of the board and the, and the brigands and all the rest of it that would come for you and then just uh, i just always really have a soft spot for dungeon um it's just such a simple pure you know romp for treasure and it was kind of it just had this undeniable appeal for me awesome uh so the last question that i want to ask uh is you talked about you know, you've had a couple different ports uh and if you can't talk about this that's fine but i'm just curious how is the Switch version doing uh, versus the other versions that you already have put out as far as not not you don't have to give me like hard numbers or anything, but is it surprising you as how well it's doing or is it not as good as you were thinking? I'm just curious if you can tell us that kind of information. Um, well, I mean, I don't mind talking about it a little bit. Uh, I can't speak, obviously, in, in numbers. Um, PlayStation had the advantage of being the first over the wall as far as our console debut. 
uh, if you want to lump PlayStation, Xbox, and Switch into the same category, which I know that neither PlayStation, Xbox, or Switch would want to do. Um, but so they had a bit of a lead as far as uh, sales go overall. Um, but our Switch sales have um, greatly exceeded our, our initial estimates and our expectations. It was absolutely worth it to do. And um, the game plays really nicely on the Switch, so that's always a pleasure to see. But uh, the, yeah, the Switch did did really really well for us. So we want to. That's part of the reason why we want to like take a look and see if there's anything we can do about the font stuff. And you know, because we feel like the sales have justified it. Um, so it was definitely a. Uh, definitely very happy with, with the performance. Well, with that being said, and I know that you probably can't answer this, but I'm going to ask, and if, if you can't answer it, just say, I can't answer that right now. Um, but when whatever comes out next, like uh, Red Hook's next game, is it? are you planning on having it uh, follow the same path where it starts out on PC and then moves to consoles later? Or is it something where you kind of want to have everything launch at once? Um. I really feel like we benefited from the Steam Early Access program, not just in terms of like early monetization, which was important for us um, at the time, but in terms of having the, the player feedback and people stress testing the systems and breaking the game, essentially. That taught us a lot about our own game. So I think that next time out, we would want to do the same thing. I don't, I can't speak to what ultimately will happen, but I would love to be able to exit early access and launch on all consoles simultaneously. But I think there is just too much value in the Steam early access model where you can patch and, and the game is updated instantly. There's no sort of like certification process. There's no cumbersome overhead that usually goes along with um, pushing patches and updates on console. So it's just a much more flexible, flexible sort of developer friendly sales environment. Um, so I can't at this point in time, caveat, caveat, um, <laughs> I can't see us not doing early access, but I would love to plan ahead so that the the other ports come out in a way that's like, you know, timely and immediate and they can enjoy the, the game fresh alongside the people uh, who, you know, even have participated in, in, in some of the early access stuff. Um, it's... Yeah, I think that's more exciting than sort of um, bringing them out one after the other um, after the PC has had such a long lead. So I, I'd love to look at what we could do there. Um, but it, it is like just as a developer, Steam is just such a great environment to, to push patches live and make balance and tuning changes and immediately see what people think um, that I think we would be remiss not to take advantage of that again. All right. Well, there's definitely people who are going to want to hear all about the new DLC for uh, your for Darkest Dungeon and whatever the next game is that's coming down the pipe. Where is it that people are going to be able to find out that information, Chris? Um, I think uh, the at Darkest Dungeon on Twitter uh, is a great place. We cross post all of our stuff. So if we do a blog post on our website, which is darkestdungeon.com, um, we will announce that blog post on Twitter and Facebook, which is just Facebook slash Darkest Dungeon. Um, that's, uh, that's where all our stuff happens. Awesome. Thanks so much for coming on the show, man. Thank you so much for having me, man. Appreciate it. Have a good one. <laughs>